I'm Branko Melodic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. Today we have with us, dare I say, a, a returning guest, a, a favourite guest, a, dare I say, almost a prodigal son, architect, author, educator, consultant, and some would say raconteur, the founder of Enverona Studio, Tone Wheeler. Welcome back, Mr. Wheeler. Hi, Branko. So today, um, on this lovely, sunny, not really much sunny, um, wet, windy <laughs> day we have, um, you would like to talk about architectural science, which is both fascinating and scary, just thinking about it. Is that right? Yeah, the issue of architectural science, I think, is very much top of mind at the moment, partly, sadly, through the deaths of a couple of really excellent practitioners for whom I wrote obituaries for the Architecture and Design digital magazine. But I think it's moreover wanting to talk about the general approach of architectural science. And perhaps a good way to start is with the very first department of architectural science at the University of Sydney, which grew out of a laboratory that was established there by Jack Cowan, or more properly known as Henry Cowan, or Professor Dr. Henry Cowan. And in 1954, he established a laboratory to do tests on buildings as a part from doing tests uh, in a medical or scientific sense. And that grew into a department of architectural science. Jack Cowan was there for more than 30 years as, as its professor and director. And nearing retirement, he wrote a memoir in which he described it as, in the title of the memoir, a contradiction in terms. And in other words, that the idea of mixing architecture and science was like an oxymoron. There were two words that didn't go together. And he insisted that they should, and he put together a team of people who were interested in structures, uh, published books on, on concrete, Peter Smith in particular. Um, they were interested in um, acoustics, it's Fergus Fricker. They were interested in lighting, it's Warren Julian. And they built a, a team of people there, but they were the research side of architecture. The University of Sydney then got a reputation for having a research aspect to it. The person that was there that was of most interest to me, or so I say the two people, were both students there. One was younger and started as a postgraduate career to do a master's in uh, building science, that was Steve King. And he was teaching architecture students when I first started there in the early 70s. And the thing about Steve was that he had actually got an architecture degree and he really was a very good designer, a very good architectural draftsman and very, very good designer, as well as wanting to understand the science of it. So the thing that Steve brought to it when we were students was this sense that it was relevant. All this arcane thing about the mathematics and the physics 
was actually applicable to how you designed buildings. And there was a rigor to it. And at the same time, there was a PhD student doing a studies called Jack Greenland. And Jack just passed away recently in September 22. And Jack had the same uh, approach to it, not the same background. He'd, he'd done a master's in building science and then before that um, a science degree, but he was absolutely committed to trying to make architecture and science work together, that there was scientific principles that could be passed on to students, that they could be, they could understand the three elements as he had them, heat, light, and sound. So he was interested in thermal comfort. He was interested in natural light, daylight, and artificial light. And he was interested in acoustics. And that was the title of his lectures. And he talked about how buildings, the interiors of buildings, which was the focus of it, had to be comfortable for people to be in. It had to be well lit and it had to have the right acoustics to it. And those principles, I think, were inculcated into a whole generation of architects who were what you might call late modernists, who were inheritors of the, the dictum of form follows function, but it was more what I would now call form follows forces in the sense that it's the forces of physics that dictated the nature of some of those spaces, particularly in regard to acoustics. When you were looking at big halls or theatres and so on, cinemas, you were looking at the notion of how the framing of those spaces would contribute to either good acoustics or poor acoustics and the shaping of it. Now, the big lesson that was there in Sydney was the late modernist idea from Jorn Utzon that the outside structural form of the opera house was independent of the internal acoustic form and that his notion of precast concrete with the tiles and so on on the outside of it had one shape derived, as we all know, from that notion of the great circle, the great arc cut from an orange um, in, in his breakfast. But moreover, the inside of it was made in long pieces of plywood intended to come from Ralph Simon's factory further up the Parramatta River. And that meant that there was a change between an emphasis in classical or Gothic architecture, but particularly in classical architecture of what the form was on the outside of the building to Gothic and more recently modern architecture, looking at what the form was inside the building and its space to splitting the two things apart. And that was the building that sat there on the promontory in Sydney while the University of Sydney's course in architectural science was being developed. It was kind of like the, the big mothership sitting on the promontory that you had to understand in terms of structure, acoustics, lighting, and so on. Steve King went on to teach at Canberra University and his methodology for it was one that I think was the, the basis of the Canberra CAE as it was then those days, a College of Advanced Education. And for the younger members of the audience, the CAE 
was an invention of Gough Whitlam, the Labour Prime Minister from 72 to 75, who wanted a training facility that was halfway between a TAFE, which was essentially seen as being for uh, people who would undertake a trade, and the professions, particularly the arts and sciences and economics. So if you were in a profession that didn't require that kind of university training, so you say teaching, nursing, architecture, some brands of science and so on, they formed these CAEs, College of Advanced Education. Um, and uh, some of them were in fantastic and famous buildings like the Karingai CAE, and some of them were in large, pretty anodyne campuses like the one in Canberra. Steve went there and he joined a small group of staff that were trying to combine whatever their particular discipline was in design. So everybody taught design studio and brought in whatever their techniques were. So um, Don Dunbar, who taught history, was looking at historical precedents for how you do design. Um, and Dave Harmon, who was an architectural scientist, was looking for ways of developing buildings that responded to the, the basic physics of it. And then the more sophisticated versions of that were done by Steve King. This is an interesting way of teaching design, that you actually have a discipline and you explore that discipline through the act of design. It's not practiced, to my knowledge, anymore in any of the architecture schools. In fact, it didn't last at Canberra more than the first 15 years because it requires dedicated staff who, can, who are just doing that teaching. It takes an enormous amount of energy and commitment to run both the lectures and run the designs. But Steve um, made that the basis of the school. And it's interesting because the Canberra School of Environmental Design, as it is, is coming up for its 50th anniversary of its founding. And one of the things that there's a young student there who's doing some research in it. And one of the things I think is finding very interesting is that the early days allowed staff an enormous latitude in what they would do in design. And as a result of that, the students gained a, an education that had a very wide philosophy. At the same time that Steve had moved to Canberra, Jack Greenland, the other great teacher at Sydney University, moved to the New South Wales Institute of Technology. Um, and when I wrote about this, I got various replies that came back, one of them saying that Peter Middleton, very well known, uh, teaching an academic from the 1970s, who'd actually had quite a lot of influence at Auckland University, was instrumental in convincing Jack Greenland to go to the News Wit, as it was called, later and not very long after the University of Technology, comma, Sydney. And uh, Jack was to found a Department of Architectural Science at the New South Wales Institute of Technology. He did the same thing that Steve did but probably even more convincingly because he was kind of like a one-man band teaching this architectural science and his lectures were brilliant. I mean, I'd been to some of them at the University of Sydney and I was glad to maintain my contact with Jack Greenland as I did with Steve King 
over a period of time and heard some of the talks that he gave, they were always putting allegories and simple ideas that would explain very complex notions or, or complex equations or, or complex issues in structures or particularly in heat, light and sound. And Jack was, was a brilliant communicator. I don't think there's anybody who didn't enjoy his lectures. In fact, it's very difficult at the New South Wales Institute of Technology in those days because it was a part-time course. It's no longer, it's just become the same as every other school. But in those days, it had this wonderful distinction that after first year, you did four days in an accredited architecture school, more like a, uh, an apprenticeship, if you like. Um, and then you spent, uh, sorry, four days in an architectural practice, um, like a, an, a, an apprenticeship. And then you did four, um, four lectures during a design studio, during a day and a night or a day and two nights, depending on how it was spread out. And Jack, Russ, <laughs> Jack Greenland always got the last lecture of the last night. <laughs> so he's teaching the most difficult subject of physics and mathematics in, in architecture. And he's teaching it to very, very tired students. And quite a number of his ex-students wrote to me after my obituary that said he was brilliant. He could actually hold your attention. And if you did fall asleep, he was pretty unkind <laughs> um, about it. When the new professor, Winston Barnett, joined the school, the uh, UTS School of Architecture in those days, uh, he was very good at encouraging, Winston, uh, Winston was good at encouraging Jack Greenland to put all of his ideas into a book and to write out these lectures and to convey something of the, the principles that he was talking about without the deep worked examples of mathematics that was in lots and lots of the textbooks of that day. And as a result of that, he produced The Foundations of Architectural Science, uh, in a book called, as a subtitle, Heat, Light and Sound, as you might expect. And the book is fantastic. I mean, it came out in several editions. It was filled with illustrations that were done by Jack in part, also by another legendary teacher at UTS, Adrian Boddy. Um, and it had photos of an extraordinarily wide range of buildings around the world, but, but particularly in Asia and Papua New Guinea, where Jack had been, um, and around Australia, to illustrate how these principles came into buildings, which was the connection that had not been made up until that time, believe it or not. And the book, Fundamentals of Science, became the textbook, not only for UTS, but for quite a large number of schools. And the, the book had several different printings. Um, it's uh, in, in its third, re, third edition, several reprints, um, but it's, it's now no longer available. Um, it's no longer in print and it's to a certain extent being superseded by a book by Stephen Zoccoli, released in 2004, called An Introduction to Architectural Science, which tends to re return back to the mathematical 
algorithm approach to how science might work. This, I think, is a, is a sad thing because I think the thing that Jack Greenland did was to explain very complex ideas of the qualities of the internal spaces of the buildings through diagrams, through basic principles that were comprehensible to architects to help them make better buildings. I know that our attention at the moment is to external form making and so on. If you go to the, you know, the Glamour websites, you'll see hundreds of pictures of the outside of buildings and very, very few of the inside. But the whole reason for architecture is actually the inside of the buildings, which is where architectural science happens. So I, in a sense, I'm making a lament for the passing of not only Steve King and Jack Greenland and the book, The Foundations of Architectural Science, but moreover, the whole practice of it. Now, I might be said to be reminiscing back on that and um, I certainly was I was there and caught up in it all I contributed um, a number of designs to that book of the foundations of architectural science I'll end up to putting in some uh, whole page descriptions and, and pictures of houses for hot humid hot arid temperate and cold climates and um, the acknowledgements Jack Greenland said it was it was nice for me to do that and that he and I think alike on these matters. What he didn't actually say was that I think like that only because I was taught by Jack Greenland. But I think there was a golden era when architectural science was an important subject at all universities. There was, you know, Balsani and Steve Zuckerley in Queensland. There was uh, John Ballinger, University of New South Wales, Deborah White, um, who had worked with the Coldy Cuts at the University of Melbourne and then Deborah White was in Adelaide. And there was a certain sense in which the principles of good architectural science became the principles of sustainability. And those early architectural scientists became advocates for sustainability and they trained people like Gareth Cole and particularly David Baggs, who have become quite famous for their advocacy and their work in, in those areas. I believe that that doesn't happen so much anymore. What I've seen in my visits to architecture schools is quite often a sophisticated analysis of the external forms of buildings without the rigor in terms of what's going on on the inside. Sustainability is kind of like a bolt on exercise rather than the fundamentals of heat, light and sound. And I'm, I'm a little disappointed, I guess, by that, but then that maybe is just an old man's lament for the passing of something that um, was, I think, quite vital in the making of good architecture um, starting in the 1960s and going through to the 1970s and 80s. There were textbooks that we loved. Two of them were... Design with Climate by Victor Augier that came out in 1963, and then Ian McCard's great book, um, Design with Nature. And I think those two titles have, have never been surpassed. The idea that you design in accordance with the climate and you design in accordance with 
nature, the landscape and the area around you. In other words, you took the external forces around the building and looked at how those forces, the sun, the wind, the landscape, the topography, topology, landscape and so on, would influence what the building would be like and how it would react and how the interiors of the building would relate to the outside. It's a, a way of following that dictum that I said that I think form follows forces in the sense of how do you shade buildings to keep the sun out in passive means rather than running air conditioning. And there are whole pages of it in Victor Olvier's book. How do you position a building on a site so it has the least amount of impact. And you know, Ian McHarg's thing in Design with Nature was that you would take the worst part of the site and build on that by what's become known as McHargian analysis, which is a series of overlays to identify which bits of the site are really strong in design idea or design possibilities rather, and which parts of it are not so um, not so valuable, they become the bits that you build on. You try and improve the worst parts of the site. So you don't build in the view, you don't build on the top of the hill, you don't build in the, the best part of the site. You build where you can be sheltered away from the wind, you, you, you build in a way that is not interfering with the water courses and the, the way the water runs. And Australia has, I think, a much stronger tradition of taking design with nature and design with climate than the origins of it in Europe and America, because there was a, pe a period when the 1960s and 70s, when I think architecture was designed by these forces. There were some other influences to it as well that I had written about earlier in architecture and design. A guy called P.A. Yeomans, who invented a thing called the key line which is a way of understanding on very broad sites how you can actually make the water run uphill. And if that sounds anti-science, then go, go and find my article about P.A. Yeomans because it's a really interesting thing of how he would make poor, rocky, relatively infertile ground more fertile by using the water, um, natural water, just the rain, to, to make that work. And that then plays into the, the notion of permaculture and how, which is a fantastic Australian invention that uh, we have created this notion that runs now all over the world, that permaculture is the way of putting plantings together. Now, I, I just wanna close this little dialogue about architectural science by bringing it back to the indigenous in Australia. And this I think is really interesting. There's um, very little attention paid to architectural developments of our Aborigines. But there is one book and it's Paul Mehmet's Ganya, Gundi and Worley, which refer to different kinds of indigenous structures. And the book was published more than 10 years ago by the University of Queensland Press. I'm told the most expensive book they've ever produced. It's a very handsome volume. 
it's an extraordinary read because Paul Mehmet spent a life looking at Aboriginal designs, investigating them, and looking at how they worked with the country that they were on, what was the landscape, what was the climate, what was the aspects they had, and the materials at hand, what was the the bark or the timber or the, the sticks, trees, whatever there might have been, what were the materials that you could then use to create, in his analysis, three different things? They were shade, a big shade structure that sat on sticks that provided a protection from the overhead heat in the sun. And of course, that's basically a veranda that we know so well in Australia. And it would also have a windbreak, a different kind of thing, which was often made by um, interwoven brush material that provided protection against the wind. But they may be separate structures in separate places. You weren't combining them all together trying to make one building. You were actually putting these things where they fitted best. And then the third thing was to provide thermal comfort, warmth, by having a small element, in some cases it's a cave, in some cases it's um, a, a tight interwoven arrangement of branches and bark and so on to provide a warm area against the cold at night, which incidentally was measured in some circles, it's said to be measured by the number of dogs that you would keep with you to keep warm. And the coldest of nights is known as a three-dog night, which might resonate with a few of the um, older members of the listening audience is an American band of the 1970s. But what I found interesting about Paul Mehmet's book was that it gave credence to the way in which Indigenous worked with country and with climate and with the materials to create only what was necessary Nothing more than was needed, only what was necessary in order to make a sculpture, sculpt, sorry, a sculptural piece, as we would see it, but was in fact entirely elegantly the forces driving a form. Paul Mehmet's book became so celebrated, but so rare, that up until about six months ago, you couldn't find a copy. And if you did find a copy on the net, it was more than 2000 Australian dollars. Happy to say that one of the things that this podcast will do is celebrate Paul Mehmet's release of the second edition of this book, that it's been republished. And it's now available just under or just over $100 um, on most of the um, the digital um, book sales websites uh, as an advance order. I just encourage everybody to get a copy of this. This is because we are now seeing a resurgence in respect and understanding for the way in which the Indigenous understood country. I think this is an important thing. I think this is a very, very important book that every architect needs to read. Not because of the history of it, not to kind of say that we're going to absorb some respect for Indigenous culture, which I think is there, 
but more because it teaches us about architectural science. It's the very basics of heat, light and sound that you do when you're just doing what is needed no more. Um, and the way in which that translates into contemporary um, or Indigenous work. In other words, the things that were done in camps and encampments and so on, and the way in which corrugated iron, as it was called, you know, the tin was used as a replacement for interwoven brush or for bark, and um, the way in which um, modern materials could be adapted into some of these ideas, and then the way in which that got lost. But there are there's a chapter towards the end of Ganya, Gundi, and Worley that does detail that out. What is interesting is that in the very early days when Steve King and I and Dave Harmon were working in Canberra, we got to meet with uh, someone who's doing research at the Institute of Aboriginal Studies based in Canberra, who explained some of these principles, but they just seemed so foreign because there wasn't a textbook that you could look at. And so you know, maybe my final point here is my great respect I have for books. I think it's all very well to have websites and be able to look things up, but it's the character of carrying a detailed argument in a book that I think is important, which brings me back to not only Paul Mehmet's book, but to this Foundations of Architectural Science. Now, Lena Thomas, who is the inheritor in a sense of the environmental studies area at the University of Technology, um, herself a great teacher, just a fantastic enthusiast and teacher who has really made it comprehensible to the current issues of sustainability. And I think she's done great work in that. She tells me that, that she'll look into getting that, that book republished, which I think is a, it would be an excellent idea. It may seem a bit corny, you know, the little cartoon-esque, kind of drawings and so on, maybe uh, a remnant, they're not as sophisticated as you might find on a website now. But it's what lies behind it that I think is is just so essential. It's, you know, Branko, it's a, it's a really important part of architecture that we make our spaces, the places that people are in, inside, we make them as good passive spaces that we don't ask for energy. We don't ask for energy for heating or cooling. We don't ask for energy for lighting. We don't ask for us to have to magnify voices and acoustics and so on. You could do it all passively if you can. Um, that's now got a resurgence. It's got a resurgence in sustainability with a word attached to it. But let's go back to the first principles. First principles. They can come from Jack Greenland and they can come from Paul Mehmet. This has been Talking Architecture and Design, talking for the wonderful time we are. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Branko Melodic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. Thank you.